Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's September 2023, and the American cyclist Sepp Kuss is leading the Vuelta España, one of cycling's free three-week Grand Tours. He's just cemented his position as leader of the race after nullifying his rivals on the Col de Tourmalet, the most important mountain stage of the race. But not everyone's happy with what they've just witnessed. Jérôme Pino, a former manager of a team that competed in the 2022 Tour de France, claims that Kuss's performance on the Tourmalet is beyond credibility. Specifically, the moment when he accelerates pauses and then accelerates again, quickly passing all of his rivals, easily eating up the 10% gradient. My goodness, this is how much he's got left in the tank and Sepkos has absolutely lit up the afterburners. He's gone. We see the pictures. I'm not talking about doping, but about something that is even worse. Yes, mechanical. Pinot's observation made live on French radio catches his fellow panellists off guard. If you watch Sepp Kuss's attack on the Tourmalet against riders like Juan Ayuso, Kian Urtebrooks and Marc Soler, they're not so slow on bikes, are they? Kuss rides 10 kilometres per hour faster with his attack, then has to slow down because of a spectator and then rides 10 kilometres per hour faster after. Pino goes in for more. It worries me a lot. I see certain things happening. Kuss advances 10 seconds without pedalling. I just don't know how that's possible. He then sits up and prepares himself for the final statement on the matter. With Lance Armstrong, there was never any evidence, but we riders in the peloton knew about his deception. Now, exactly the same thing is happening. Pinot's comments immediately go viral and send the cycling world into a frenzy. But rather than people coming out in his support, the vast majority, almost every comment I see or hear, berates the Frenchman, slapping down his comments as unsubstantiated and lacking any sort of evidence. Kuss, meanwhile, has a blemish-free record and is one of the most likeable and popular figures in modern-day cycling. 
Few in the sport take seriously Pinot's mudslinging at the affable Coloradan. But just like that, despite there being no new evidence of any wrongdoing, motor doping is back in the news. It's been eight years since Femke van den Driesche became the sport's first, and today only, sanctioned motor doper. But the issue stubbornly refuses to go away. In the last episode, after speaking with Femke, we called in on family friend Nico van Mulder. He's the man who claimed ownership of the motorised bike at the time, and his version of events has stayed the same over the intervening years. At the end of our chat, however, he dropped a bombshell. Nico claimed that, in the weeks after Femke was caught, he received a flurry of calls from other bike races keen to get their hands on a motor. How many are we talking? Are we talking 2, 5, 15, 85? More of 50. 50? And what would they ask you? For to do. Nico said that around 50 cyclists asked him to install a motor in their bikes. When asked if any of these riders were professional, he remained tight-lipped. I'm taken aback by Nico's claim. Okay, given everything we know about him and his state of mind at the time of the race, he may not be a reliable source. But why would he make up such a thing at this stage? How would it benefit him? It's difficult to know. But what if Nico's telling the truth? Online, I find reports that bike shops in Belgium witnessed what they termed a Femke effect. In the weeks after her downfall, amateurs from across the country asking shops to install a motor in their own bike. Then, in 2017, two racing amateurs, one in France, one in Italy, were caught with motors in their bikes during amateur races. 17h. Ce coureur en jaune fluo vient d'abandonner sur crevaison à deux tours de l'arrivée dans cette petite course rurale de Dordogne. The case of the French amateur, a 43-year-old plasterer called Cyril Fontaine, made international news. After being caught, he confessed to using the bike in five previous races, taking home over 500 euros in prize money. When asked by French radio if he had any remorse, he replied, I'm not the only one doing it. Sometime after, Fontaine was handed a five-year ban in order to do 60 hours of community service by the French courts. Motor doping is a criminal offence in France. But that didn't deter over Frenchmen. Five years later, in 2022, a 73-year-old president of a small French cycling club was disqualified from a race after someone found his concealed motor. These stories remind me of what Brian Cookson, the former president of cycling's world governing body, the UCI, had earlier told me about the fallout for any rider who gets caught with a motor. Any elite cycling team in any discipline, if they are... If one of their riders is ever caught using mechanical doping, technological fraud, whatever, that is their entire reputation shot. Nobody's going to touch them. Nobody's going to want them at their events. Nobody's going to want to sponsor them. So your entire team is down the pan. No sponsors, no riders, no team staff. All the whole thing is shot to pieces. And I think that the fact that we got somebody, we caught somebody on that very first day has been an incredible large red warning sign to everybody. But these cases, albeit at an amateur level without millions of euros hanging on results, indicate that the reality is that the reputational risk isn't acting as a deterrent. The question is, just how far up the echelons of the sport did the Femke effect reach? As Jerome Pino's outburst highlights, there were once again, in 2024, 
fears among well-informed parties that the practice of motor doping is occurring at the top level. So is it all nonsense, yet more conspiracy fodder? Or is motor doping really still happening today? I'm Chris Marshall-Bell, and from Stack, this is Ghost in the Machine. Episode 5, Still Getting Away With It? When I started out on this investigation at the beginning of 2023, I had two aims. I wanted to know what led to a motor being found in Femke van Dries' spare bike at the 2016 Cyclocross World Championships and the impact it had on the then 19-year-old. Secondly, I also wanted to find out whether motor doping was really reducible just to Femke, one young Belgian, or if it was a pervasive conspiracy that has been present in pro cycling since the end of the blood doping era of Lance Armstrong. What we've learned is that Femke confesses to nothing. Her story remains the same. First told eight years ago that the bike was not hers and was left in the pits by mistake. The bike, apparently, belonged to Nico van Mulder, a family friend. We can't disprove Femke's version of events, but there are many inconsistencies that call her account into question, including video and photographic evidence of Femke using a bike in previous races that looks identical to the motorised one. It's not difficult to identify since she had stars painted on the frame to represent her win at the 2015 European Championships. So I'm left feeling frustrated that Femke and Nico can't give me anything new about how that bike came to find itself in her corner in 2016. What is clear and unambiguous is that Femke comes from a family containing men with checkered histories in the sport. We've heard how her brother Niels was suspended from cycling for a doping offence in 2014 and then had his suspension doubled after he helped Femke during races while he was banned. Femke is now working in the family's roofing business, a company that boasts a varied catalogue of services, covering everything from, well, yes, roofing of course, to bodybuilding, the operation of fitness centres and the refurbishment of cars. We've also learned that, happily, Femke's life has not been destroyed as a result of a motor being found in her bike. When we spoke with her, she was happy, laughing, and she projected defiance and a good humour. She's also now a mother of two young twins. They sleep all they sleep night. very well. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah, super, yeah. So you have two perfect babies? Yeah, yeah, unbelievable. <laughs> but yeah, perfect babies, I know. Nico, Femke's associate, had a less than cheery tale to tell, however. He received death threats for his apparent part in the motor's discovery and was forced to close down his business he even had to flee to Thailand to escape the hatred. And she said, oh, you Batman, why you do that? You, uh, we go kill you and, and so. Yeah. But, and the first two years was not so easy for me. Femke was a central figure in this scandal, where she's no longer the one damaged by events from 2016. Instead, it's Nico, the burly macho man, who has been most affected. As for the second line in my investigation, we have found no evidence to date that other cyclists have used a motor in professional bike races. But from speaking with some of the most senior figures in the sport, as well as riders, journalists and fans, my sense is of a growing consensus across the sport that Femke wasn't the only one to turn up to a professional race with a concealed motor in a bike. The view I've heard time and time again is that, 
Although the use of motors is not widespread or systematic, motors have been used in some of the biggest races in cycling. We've already heard doubts expressed about certain performances by top-level riders, including Fabian Cantalara, Chris Froome and Alberto Contador, albeit without any hard evidence ever produced, and they've always denied the rumours. But the revelation that no tests were in place to detect motors until 2016 only fans the flames further. Will we ever find proof of previous motor use? According to former UCI president Brian Cookson, it's unlikely, and he won't say whether he thinks motors were used or not. Do you think this was a, was a bit of a watershed moment? So Femke gets caught and it was a message to everyone else. If you're using this, you can't use it again. Do you think it really uh, nipped it in the bud? Yes. But I guess what you're going to say and what other people say, well, how far had that bud grown already? And I don't think we'll, we'll ever know that um, unless people might choose to admit something further down the line, you know? So maybe at some point in the future, somebody will come along and say, you know what, that time when X rider won that X performance event with an amazing performance, I was the man who fitted a, uh, a motor to his or her bike or, or, or whatever. Who knows? I don't know. Italian journalist Marco Bonarigo has been investigating motors for almost a decade, and he shares Cookson's assessment. It's really difficult to say if they are uh, using a motor, we cannot deal with the possibility that it, it will be also, it will be always a mystery. And uh, the, the poor uh, Belgian girl will be the only one. If we find a case of motor doping in pro races, maybe the end of cycling. I go back to Thierry Vildre, the French journalist who has been investigating the topic for a decade. We heard from him in episode two. I asked Thierry for his thoughts on whether or not motors are being used in today's peloton. I think that it is possible for me, it is sure that it had been used in the last, for example, in the last five years. I'm quite sure because you cannot prove it, but you have the performances and you have some performances that are not possible even with the P. It's far from hard proof, merely yet more speculation and an educated guess. But when I start asking people at the 2023 Tour de France about it, I'm struck by how many team officials concur with Thierry's assessment and are then happy to share their fears with me, albeit off the record and in a hushed voice. Most think the whole topic is just one big crazy conspiracy theory, a sideshow not to be taken seriously. But I have had several long conversations with figures in the sport who worry that the book did not stop with Femke and is in fact still lurking over the sport's shoulders. One ex-rider, a winner of some of the biggest bike races in the past decade, even starts sending me YouTube clips of performances in recent years that he claims point towards the possible use of motorised assistance. I cannot repeat any of these rumours, doubts and anecdotes that cycling insiders have told me because I have been unable to verify them and no hard evidence has been provided. Plus, I know for a fact my wonderful producer Pete doesn't want any legal headaches. But, they have each given me food for thought and made me seriously consider and ponder that the sport's biggest teams and best riders may be winning bike races today with the help of a concealed motor. I should also add that this is a sport where athletes have consistently tried to cheat right throughout its history. Whether it's catching trains, spiking the water bottles of fellow competitors, or using performance-enhancing drugs, cycling has always attracted skullduggery. 
it's clear that the suspicion, even inside the sport, remains to this day. Brian Cookson, the president of the UCI when Femke got caught, is at pains to stress to me that he strongly believes that motor doping isn't happening today. But he knows better than most that you can't rule anything out in cycling. The fact is, I think we're looking here at a situation where you need eternal vigilance, as you do with doping. There'll always be people who are prepared to cheat. There'll always be new things coming along. It's only right that I put the matter to the sport's current leading lights. First up, Tare Bogaccia, the undisputed best cyclist in the world at the moment. He won two tours to France before he turned 23. And, if you ask me, I think he will go down as the greatest cyclist of all time. There is no suggestion at all that Pogacar has used a motor. And when I pose the question to him, he's utterly perplexed. For motor doping, I don't know. Now, since uh, electric bikes are a big thing, no? We can see that uh, it's pretty difficult to fit a proper motor in, in a road bike. And uh, that is like, that you cannot see it, no? I think, uh, yeah, if that would be a thing ever, I think for sure somebody would notice so far. Yeah. You don't think it's possible in today's age? I don't, I don't think so, yeah. I think, uh, yeah, motor uh, in the bike was uh, like not big thing, but there were more... Uh, more rumors in the past, like a few years ago, like five, six, ten years ago. But yeah, uh, now uh, that you mentioned this, uh, I cannot remember when was the last time I heard about this. So yeah, I think we're quite uh, on the safe side, I would say. It's striking to me that the sport's number one rider is unaware that motor technology has advanced to the extent that it's more than feasible to integrate a motor very discreetly inside a racing bike. Nothing like the technology used in commercially produced e-bikes, but much more on this in the next episode. I next go to Adam Hansen, the head of a union representing professional men's cycling, and a retired rider who rode 12 tours to France across a 20-year career. My opinion on, on motor doping is it would be extremely hard to do that in today's time. Um, and what I mean by that is to have motor doping at world tour level would actually mean that the whole team is involved. It's an argument put forward by many. If a rider at the world to a level of cycling, the highest tier, was using a motor, aside from the athlete, a mechanic, team manager, helpers and other staff members would also surely need to be in on the act. Well, I'd like to believe in today's time it's zero at the world to a level because I think the risk is way too high. Like, and I, I just think it's, it's way too high. Teams can't keep their mouths shut. It's this one year's mechanics and then someone will see something and, and you have the risk of a, of, a, of a team member changes team. Word will get out. From what I know of how teams operate, and I've been on plenty of team buses, I'm not convinced by the argument that several people would need to be in on a motor plot. I could imagine a scenario where it's simply a covert arrangement between the rider and a complicit mechanic because they're the only two people who need to come into contact with the bike. The more people that would know, the greater risk of getting busted. Look, I'm not saying it would be an easy thing to do, and it's certainly not risk-free, but we know in the past that riders have been willing to risk everything. Hansen, like most current and former riders, doubts motor doping is happening today. But what about when he was racing in the 2010s? Back before, yeah, I could see it, I could see it like possible it could happen 
And there we go again. A strong disbelief that some riders today have a motor in their bikes, but a strong intuition that it was happening more widely pre-Femke. Will we ever know? In 2020, French police released the results of a three-year investigation into motor doping. Top detectives had spent years chasing bike riders and teams around Europe trying to suss out any sniff of motor doping. The verdict was final and absolute. Case closed. Nothing to see here. According to them, modern-day professional cycling was, and is, free from motors. Most of the confidence that motors aren't being used today derives from the fact that the UCI now has tests in place to detect motors. A reminder, the very first test was introduced on the day Femke was caught in 2016. We cannot uh, continue with X-ray exam, with uh, the, the, the ridiculous system of the, a tablet around uh, the frame, we detect anything. We have to change completely the, the way of controlling the bikes. So is the testing really doing what it's supposed to be doing? And are the would-be motor dopers of 2024 one step ahead? Yet again. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How do the UCI, cycling's governing body, test for motors? In 2015, a year and a bit into his presidency, Brian Cookson realized that he needed to get on top of the issue. The rumours of motors just wouldn't go away. Well, we were he- we were not hearing anything specific like that. We were just seeing what was uh, already in the you know in on the internet, in public domain, on YouTube and Twitter and, and whatever. And so, a lot of it appeared to be speculation. A lot of it appeared to be on dubious technological grounds. But but you know, nevertheless. Um, sufficiently concerning for us to say something has to be done here. Cookson hired fellow Englishman Mark Barfield as the UCI's technical manager, a job that included being responsible for equipment checks. Barfield has worked in a variety of sports since the 1990s, and when I call him, he wants to set one thing straight from the off. My uh, educational background is in um, 
sports science, uh, business management at a master's level, uh, but I'm not an engineer. Um, I'm a, a cyclist and a very good project manager, um, so I can get things done, and, and that's effectively uh, how I've built a career. Um, and my strategy with something like this is to find out everything that we can possibly know about it and then find the people that can help us solve that problem. When he arrived at the UCI, they'd already been dismantling bikes at big races, but it was labour-intensive and time-consuming. Barfield realised he needed to find a better solution to detect motors. His research and experimentation taught him one overriding lesson. Every single motor has a magnet in it of some description, okay? And it might, the magnet might be interior, might be exterior, but all of those things, it has a magnet. And any magnet of any size gives away a magnetic signature. It has a resonance. That meant he wanted to develop a system that could detect, you guessed it, a magnet. And so he started making calls. We put the net out a long way in terms of trying to, to gather information. I was approached by a company based in the UK. That company was called Endoscope Eye. They're a British company based in Birmingham, not so far from where Barfield was born. They specialised in bespoke innovative engineered solutions, primarily aimed at the healthcare sector. They had no previous experience in the sports field. Barfield met them in September 2015, and he was persuaded that Endoscope Eye could develop a system for the UCI. In the space of a month and a half, two months, they developed a, a prototype, and we'd We'd given them some motors. They bought some motors that we could insert inside frames to see if they could be detected using the, the product that they'd, they'd developed. Um, and effectively, they carried on that development path um, from September through to uh, November, um, through to when we got to a working model in sort of December. The system, on the face of it, is rather basic. The developed software uses the magnetometer in an iPad and a fixed magnet in the tablet's case to detect magnetic resonance, which in turn gives a visual display on the iPad. The person using the system, a UCI official in the real world, can then scan bikes with the device. The iPad quantifies the likelihood of the presence of metal within its search field. A scale of 0 to 10 appears on the screen, and the closer the tablet is to metal, the greater the number. A motor would score a rating of 10. If the scanner indicates that there is reason to believe that a motor or something else that could provide an extra propulsive force is present, UCI officials would then have to dismantle the bike and manually investigate. Come the end of 2015, the UCI had a prototype version from Endoscope Eye and started testing it on a range of motors, including the VVAX Assist, the type of motor that Femke used. Barfield was satisfied with every test they did. We were buying motors, commercially available motors, from lots and lots of different sources, to test and lots of different sizes from the smallest to the largest obviously the smaller the motor the smaller the magnet the bigger the motor the bigger the magnet and it's it's um as i said i'm not an engineer (laughs) but that's really i mean everybody's going to get the grasp of that the more power the bigger the magnet it's as simple as it is so when we tested the 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 scanning system we tested it on the the tiniest tiniest motor all the way through to the biggest that would fit in that possible space Um, and that gave us a degree of confidence The trial went on, with different types of carbon, aluminium and even steel being tested on, and the scanner continued to reassure the UCI. It was 100% of the time on every single test that we did. Um, um, So we took it, we said we would do a trial um, at the World Cyclocross Championships in uh, Zolder. And we all know what happened next. As soon as the C-post was removed, you could see wires and batteries and everything became apparent. Yep. 
On the UCI's first ever day of testing with their new magnetic scanner, they caught Femke van den Driesche's doped bike straight away. It was evidence on day one that the UCI had finally developed a system that could detect concealed motors. And, crucially for them, it was an easy-to-use system that could be used hundreds of times a day. All it takes is 60 seconds for a bike to be tested and it's on to the next one. But barely anyone I have spoken with outside the UCI thinks that these iPad scanners, as they're commonly referred to, are any good. One leading team manager who scoffs at motor doping claims admits to me that the scanners, in his opinion, are a gimmick. Another says they're a joke and another simply brands them useless. I then speak to a rider who slams the system further. We've voiced them up. They come over, they wave their scanner over the bike, but that doesn't mean that's the bike that you're actually riding. I mean, if you're going to do something dodgy, you wouldn't have that bike out on show so that it could be scanned, would you? Each bike rider has, on average, three bikes at any given race and multiple wheels. And at present, the UCI are not testing all the equipment, meaning a dodgy bike or wheel could easily evade detection. When chatting with another manager about the scanners, he pulls out his phone, scrolls through his WhatsApp, and then forwards me a link to a study that calls into question the effectiveness of such scanners. It was a link that had already been shared with me various times. The study, from 2019, claims that a layer of the most commonly used carbon fibre, the type used in bikes, is able to shield more than 99.999% of electromagnetic radiation. What that means when applies to cycling is that these iPad scanners wouldn't be able to detect any motor inside a frame or wheel because electromagnetic signals cannot pass through layers of carbon. What does Barfield think of that? One of the problems with that study is it lacked a huge amount of detail and it, and it lacked any sort of industry input or real informed peer review. Um, now, I didn't give it a huge amount of time. Bear in mind, when we tested, we tested on um, carbon, aluminium and steel frames. Um, and shielding of magnetic resonance is is incredibly difficult. So I, I don't know what sort of details they went into, but I still don't particularly buy that. Concerns have also been raised with me that the scanners, introduced almost a decade ago, are out of date, and thus possibly unable to detect more modern motors. Motors which will not be like Femke's VVAX Assist, but much smaller, lighter, and much more subtle pieces of technology. I ask Endoscope I about this, but they refer all correspondence to the UCI on the advice of the current man who has been responsible for dealing with motor doping since 2020, former Australian pro Mick Rogers. The UCI then informed me that the scanners have, and I quote, undergone multiple software updates since the inception. The debate over the scanners and their effectiveness will rage on. But it's important to say that the UCI haven't only used the iPad detection system. Thierry Vildery and Marco Bonarigo, the French and Italian journalists from whom we've heard in this series, have both taken thermal imaging cameras to races to conduct their own experiments. According to Marco, such cameras have identified heat spots in passing bikes that he and independent engineers concluded could only be explained by the presence of motors. Six years ago, using a, a small, uh, quite uh, and not too expensive thermic camera, we found some evidence in a race, in two races. I tell Barfield about this, but he's heard it all before. We did use thermal imaging, it just wasn't very good. Barfield says that the UCI experimented with thermal imaging cameras for two years, including at the 2016 Rio Olympics. 
with stationary cameras and cameras on the back of motorbikes in and around the cyclists during races. The assortment of heat sources meant that cameras displayed a confusing blur of heat traces that were impossible to isolate to any single source. Which is to say, if there were a motor present it would, in effect, be camouflaged by all the other heat noise going on around it. The UCI thus decided that thermal imaging cameras would not be used beyond the trial period. One thing the UCI did deploy, however, starting at the 2016 Tour de France, was an X-ray machine. The Tour de France is stepping up its fight against mechanical doping in the peloton. Each stage winner will have his bike thoroughly tested by a newly developed X-ray machine. Organisers want to verify there are no additional items that could provide energy to the wheel. It's the same procedure like having an X-ray in a hospital to see if you've broken a rib. Now we can see if there's something that should not be there. Using a machine from a US-German company, around 10 bikes could be loaded into a portable X-ray machine every day at races. Now obviously the downside to X-ray is it's quite slow and therefore you're limited to the number of bikes you can do. The upside is it's pretty much impossible to cheat. Um, and I did have, I haven't got those to share with you either, but I did have a lot of the images from scanned bikes, from X-ray bikes. And you can see everything. You can see cable runs. You can see uh, badly finished ferrules for bottle cages. You can see all sorts of things that probably the manufacturers don't want you to see. <laughs> but you can certainly see everything inside the frame of the wheels. The UCI believed that they had a dual system, magnetic scanners and X-rays, that would now prevent motor doping forever. And that always corroborated what was going on with the, with the scanner as well. So um, at that point, yes, I think we, we were doing everything that could be done. We were using the scanner, which we had a lot of confidence in. We used thermal imaging um, and used it and dismissed it, I suppose, for... For, for a number of reasons, and X-ray was also part of, of what was going on. Both systems, as well as a handheld backscatter X-ray scanner that was introduced in 2021, are still in use today. And the UCI has not caught one single professional cyclist of a motor since Femke van den Driesche in 2016. It's a sign, the UCI would have you believe, that the detection measures have deterred other riders from using a motor in their bike at pro races. So is the problem solved? Case closed, as the French police concluded. Well, it turns out things are not as rosy and as clear cut as they seem. Because as I continue asking people in the cycling world about motors, I hear another common complaint the UCI are barely testing. And so I start an investigation. The UCI state that motor doping tests are carried out at all men's and women's World Tour races, of which there are a combined total of 67, and all World Championships and Olympic Games. I email all these races and ask for information relating to motor doping tests at the 2023 races. A third don't respond to me and it doesn't say the UCI have not shared such figures with them. It's unbelievably frustrating. Of the half that do reply to me, however, a number of shocking facts stand out to me. So shocking that I know that this information can't be held back until the release of this documentary, so I break the news on the Radio Cycling Podcast in late September. Yeah. Uh, uh, all right, uh, uh... Let me just switch this thing on. Testing, testing, testing. Or rather what testing? That's Jeremy Whittle presenting. He's also appeared on this series. A radio cycling investigation has found that despite the UCI stating that it carries out bike tests at 
all UCI men's and women's World Tour events, that in fact is not the reality. Chris, please tell us more. For sure, Jeremy. So there's a lot that we can get into here, but let's start with some headline figures from the Grand Tours. So the the first Grand Tour of the year is obviously the Giro d'Italia in May. We can reveal that on four of the 21 stages of the Giro d'Italia, there were no tests for technological fraud. That included the stage one and the stage 10 time trials. The X-ray machine, which is the UCI's best weapon to combat fraud, we're going to come back to that a little bit later, that was not used on one single occasion at the Giro. My investigation also finds that tests had not taken place during several other stages in other high-level races. For example, the X-ray machine wasn't used once at the Giro d'Italia and no bikes were tested on the most important stage of the Women's World to España. And this is the moment again. Bang. Loses the chain. Disaster. But it's the lack of testing in the Giro time trials that most concerns me. What have you got, Primoz? What's left? Can you dig deep? The Portuguese fans will him on. But I can tell you the Welsh dragon will be roaring for the man behind as well. Given that time trials often play a decisive part in the overall outcome of a stage race, indeed, a time trial determined the result of the 2023 Giro, it's a staggering flaw in the testing system. And as many have pointed out to me, having a motor in a time trial, a straightforward test of man against clock, would be almost guaranteed to provide a winning boost. The revelation that the UCI are failing to test for motors in many races makes one ask the question, are they really doing everything within their powers? During my investigation, I go undercover at the Vuelta España in Spain, that same race where American Sepp Kuss was accused of having a motor by the French manager Jérôme Pino. As I walk through the team's paddock, I pose as a fan and casually ask a UCI official for his thoughts on motor doping and the prevention measures that are meant to be in place. In response, he moans to me that dismantling bikes takes too long and I get the impression that he would take any chance to avoid this chore. This cuts to the heart of an important problem. Unlike with conventional doping, where there are bodies independent of the sport responsible for anti-doping tests, there is no such system in place for motors. Cycling is doing all the testing itself and not being held to account by any external authority. Supposing a motor was found in the bike of a high-profile rider, would the sport be willing to expose the crime, given that, in so doing, it would cause itself irreparable damage? A trusted source tells me that some of the most senior figures within the UCI have credible concerns and fears that motors are indeed still plaguing the sport. A few weeks after the Vuelta, at an awards gala, a UCI official finds me to commend me on my radio cycling report, adding that the governing body was pleased that I had exposed the lack of tests because it was a wake-up call to the wider sport, a reminder to those who thought this threat was over. This official also told me that big changes were coming, but wouldn't specify what exactly that meant. At the time of recording, these changes have not been announced. It was reassuring to hear, but also baffling. Why was someone from the UCI, the same organisation I had outed for not doing their job as promised, praising me for exposing their flaws? As I mull over these developments, it dawns on me that cycling's highest powers accept that motor doping may be happening, or at least is as real a threat today as it was a decade ago when the rumour mill was in overdrive. In a future episode, we will hear exclusively from David Lapartiente, the current UCI president. 
he will give his take on the governing body's record and approach to motor doping, and perhaps expand on what these upcoming big changes are going to be. Ghost in the Machine is now a live investigation, and we're happy to report we're now in receipt of various tip-offs and leads as a result of previous episodes. If you have any information that you think might aid our investigation, send them to motordoping at gmail.com. That's motordoping at gmail.com. Pretty obvious email, eh? So how do I feel about it all now? Well, the more I learn about the UCI's testing, or lack of, the less faith I have in it. At the same time, I've begun to believe more and more that motor doping could, and I stress could, be happening today. I've learned above all that it's still definitely possible. But whenever I start to convince myself that today's professional cycling does indeed have a motor problem, there's a monkey on my shoulder constantly reminding me of why it's so unlikely. For starters, no one has presented any evidence. It's still all just rumour and suspicion, nothing concrete. And then on top of that, to cheat with a motor would be to take an enormous risk. Femke, as many people have said before, was too small a name to fatally wound the sport. But if a rider on a pro team was to be found cheating with a motor today, their entire team sponsors would surely pull out. It would also threaten the sport at a time when it's desperate for increased funding and exposure. I find myself asking the same question yet again. What is the truth? And will we ever find evidence of motorised bikes? What I do know is that the more questions I ask about motor doping, the more people come to me with information. Practically every expert I've spoken to has confirmed to me that the motor Femke used, a VVAX Assist, is too big, too clunky to be used by motor dopers at a professional level today. At the time, the technology was ahead. So no one can use uh, a trick like that. And they say, okay, I have to be more cautious if I would like to use a motor in my bike. This is Italian journalist Marco Bonarigo again, explaining why and how the technology has advanced from the VVAX Assist in the past decade. I have to look for smaller and less powerful motors. So the technology moved from a 250 watts motor of 300 grams to a smaller motor that can be that can be difficult to uh, that cannot be found easily. Uh, and then to a wheel technology uh, after one or two years, because as it happened in doping, as soon as you realize that someone is suspicious, someone is looking for your uh, doping technique, you have to move uh, ahead. And the technology behind the dopers is always, always ahead in relation to the technology of of the UCI, of, of the controllers. Remember what Tare Pogaccia said? He reckoned that motor doping was nigh on impossible because the motors would come from e-bike technology and therefore would be easy to spot. It's clear the young Slovenian isn't up to speed with the latest wizardry because nowadays motors designed for professionals provide a subtler 40 or 50 watts, a big change from the 200 watts offered by the VVAX Assist. In terms of form and function, they are far less blatant they're also much smaller and capable of fitting in a rear wheel's hub, the central part of the wheel. I also keep hearing about electromagnetic wheels, technology that can apparently evade testing, though I've still yet to be given a good explanation 
as to how anything passes the scrutiny of an X-ray machine. There are also two big buzzwords when I inquire about producers of electronic motors, Formula One and aerospace. The technology being used for modern-day motors, apparently, is derived from the space and racing car industries. So who's making these motors, and where they're making them? It's like a criminal underworld I'm trying to breach, and I hear credible information that there are motors being developed in the UK, the US, Italy, Switzerland, Monaco, France, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Taiwan. When I put this to Marco, he backs up what I've heard. Now, uh, we have no rumours, no indication, no images, except uh, we know now, and to 223, we know now that there are some producers in the Middle East. We have seen this year some very small and powerful system hidden in the wheel, in the rear wheel of the bike. But we have any evidence of the use of those technologies. Getting in touch with anyone who makes tiny concealed motors is as painstaking as you can imagine. But there is one man I've been able to track down, Stefano Varius. He's a Hungarian who claims that a major team in the sport paid him almost $2 million around the turn of the millennium for exclusive rights to a motor he had developed. He hasn't, however, provided proof of that transaction. Varius is controversial, and to many in the sport, he is a maverick engineer who craves public attention and who has been duping the media for the best part of three decades. Varjas is a self-publicist. I've never met him, but he's a self-publicist and his technology really isn't very good. That's Mark Barfield again. You can tell those two who don't swap Christmas cards. Varius is often referred to as the inventor of motor doping. He sent me photos, videos and documents that all prove he has been making discreet motors for years and selling them to high-end clients, including royalty and sporting icons. If I'm going to understand modern-day motors and learn how professionals could get away with motor doping, I need to ride a bike with a concealed motor in it for myself. So it's back to the airport I go. Only this time, my destination's Budapest. So now I am going up a hill. It's absolutely effortless. So I have to ask you, have you sold a bike to a professional cyclist? No, my finances came all over the world. After if they use him for uh, cheating or for racing or for uh, rehabilitation or for um, just for enjoy uh, 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 light bike, is uh, their problem. It's not my problem. I'm going to take my feet off the pedals. That is incredible. The pedals continue to spin. It's uh, enough uh, if some people uh, not satisfied with the salary. Something maybe can reveal some secret. Who knows that? The life is always in danger, but uh, it's important to not cross the, the, the way of uh, some interest. From Stack, you've been listening to episode 5 of Ghost in the Machine. We're going to be taking a short break for a few weeks, but we will be back. We're working on some exciting episodes and following up a couple of leads that we've been given as a result of our investigation. If you have any information to share, please email us at motordoping at gmail.com. That's motordoping at gmail.com. See you soon. Ghost in the Machine is a stack production. It is presented by me, Chris Marshall-Bell, the podcast's general classification contender. It was written by myself and David Bradford, the sports director of the series. 
Sound design is by Tom Worley, the podcast's lead-out man. It was produced by Pete Donaldson, the road captain. A special thanks to Super Domestique, Christoph Muhl. And a thanks also to the Free Swan years, Finn Ranson, Charlie Morgan and Katie Baxter. Chapeau. Ghost in the Machine is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creative Network. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.